Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to the Getting Technology Right Ethics and Technology Podcast with Dr. Kevin Magnish. Get ready for a conversation about global values and technology, diversity and inclusion, discrimination, transparency in data, privacy, and cybersecurity. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello, and welcome to Getting Tech Right, the podcast about ethics and technology. My name is Kevin Magnish, and with me today is Mark Steen, Senior Research Scientist at the Netherlands Organization for Applied Scientific Research. Uh, Mark has published very widely in ethics and human-centered design and the ethics of design. Uh, He's also the author of a new book, Ethics for People Who Work in Tech, which I I have here. Great. introductory book, I think, which is uh, we'll be talking about today. So, Mark, hello. Uh, I gave you a very brief bio there, but could you flesh that out a little bit and tell us more about what you're involved in, um, what what work you're doing right now? Yeah, thanks for the invitation, uh, Kevin. Mm. Um, maybe good to say a few words on my background. I studied industri- industrial design engineering in Delft. And In a way, that's still with me. Some of the tenets of that education uh, that was very much focused on organizing a process, an innovation process. And as you, as becomes clear in the book while you go through it, it's very much a process oriented approach. So I think of ethics not as a a rubber stamp that you must collect or an exam that you must pass or a roadblock that you must pass or, or, or. uh, no, it's it's more like uh, organizing a process of ethical reflection and deliberation. And I, I see that as my role to help people in technology, designers, developers, programmers, engineers, project managers, people marketing, other other uh, roles as well, to, um, to enable them to have a better vocabulary for ethics, to have a bit of structure for talking about ethics as a process and even more. In Delft, we learned about an iterative process, a participatory process. Um, so that's still with me. Um, also, the in Delft is very important. The, um, uh, the yeah ways to combine different disciplines. We used to call it multidisciplinary, but currently we call it transdisciplinary. It's it's even more than just combining the disciplines, but it's yeah like the sum is more than the. Than the, than the separate parts. So in the book, I also touch a bit on economics, a bit on psychology, like what is it when we say something has value? Has it mm-hmm. economic value? Has it a value for, for well-being? It's good to have conversations on ethics a bit broader sometimes. Obviously, it'll be about technology, about ethics, but a bit of legal, a bit of psychology, a bit of economics. It doesn't, well, it's sometimes um, helpful to uh, to to get it into the um, dialogue. Furthermore, you asked me on uh, the organization that I work for, TNO, mm-hmm. uh, the Netherlands Organization for Applied Scientific Research. Um, it's almost 80 years old. It was established in the Netherlands as, a, uh, as an institute between academia and industry. So to help uh, translate 
academic knowledge into practical uh, usage of that knowledge by the industry. 3,000 plus people work there, uh, are my co-workers, I mean, we're with 3,000 plus people working in uh, diverse domains, energy, mobility, ICT, um, and yeah, the last 10 years or so I specialized in uh, hosting dialogues, enabling people to engage in the process of ethical reflection and deliberation, uh, more specifically when, when we are concerned with big data, algorithms, and what we currently often refer to as AI. Okay, excellent. Thank you. So with, does TNO, uh, how does TNO interact with businesses then? Because I think that's quite interesting. Is it a, a service which the Dutch government offers or is it something which businesses come to TNO and say, we want to employ you, we'll pay you to use your services? Yeah, it's both. It's both, okay. actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you imagine uh, uh, the business model is, is really simple. It's lots of costs for lots of people and a couple of machines and experimental environments, labs. Uh, but it's mainly people, of course. And then uh, its incomes come from three sources. I think they're roughly equal. One third from the government. Um, one third from uh European Union, European Commission, uh, uh, large projects as also a way to collaborate across countries. I just learned recently that the UK is uh, re-entering the Horizon Europe uh, research program. We are program. indeed after, a, after a, 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 yes, ridiculous hiatus there while yeah, everyone yeah, yeah, was yeah, trying yeah, yeah, to work I, out post-Brexit what the yeah. UK was going to do. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm very happy with it and I'm sure yes. that many people in the UK and, and, and also in the EU, of course, are happy with that. Very much so. That's, so. That, that, that's one third and the other third is by, by industry. And mm -hmm. then you can think of large and famous companies like ASML, the machine that makes the machines. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the factory that makes the machines that make the chip machines mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and smaller businesses as well. Right. OK, that's, that's really interesting. I don't think that there's an equivalent organization in the UK or the US. In the UK, no. In Germany, yes. So on the continent, I often would say it's like Fraunhofer, but okay. Right, right. Yeah, OK, yeah. interesting. And, oh, nice. And for your information, I think VTT in Finland, Sintef in Norway, if I'm not mm. confusing Norway and Sweden, we have a couple of institutes like that. And they're together in the in the RTO, research and technology organizations, right. something um, association, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So quite quite a sort of continental European approach or maybe a North European approach. But it's nice. Yeah, a, a nice thing to have. Um, so moving on to the book, what, what motivated you to write it now? Yeah, I started re writing it. Uh, I think when the when the pandemic started, so it was a good for me practical way of. Uh, well, I'm sitting inside. I have my laptop. No, but the idea idea emerged many years before it. Uh, it's based on 20 years of of research, last 10 years or so on. Uh, uh, not 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 20 years of research, 20 years of practice in diverse roles, uh, research, development, design, project management. Project management, I think, is also something that is throughout the book. It's always uh, uh, doing ethics in a project team in the in the practical context of uh, there's a project, there's a deadline, there's a budget, there's a client, there are requirements, and then how to combine uh, concerns for ethics with all the other concerns for quality, for timely delivery, for technology. Um, your question, what motivated me? Um, it's really uh, the, the, the first 
audience that I had in mind were, were my were my colleagues, were my co-workers, mm-hmm. because increasingly they were turning to me. Initially, they were coming to me with the question, hey, Mark, you're something ethics. Can you help us make us our project more ethical? And that was always a question that I understood. They have that question, but I was reluctant to reply in that direct way because I would explain to them, I'm I'm not in a position to well to give you this rubber stamp to to mm-hmm. to make you pass this exam to give you the green checkbox. It's ethical or not? It's really it's really um, yeah. It's your call, uh, and I would um, help them make more or less time and space within the project uh, to put ethical questions on the regular agenda of the regular project meetings. And I think I think for topics like privacy or bias, fairness, non-discrimination, for transparency or accountability or explainability, I mean, these are not synonyms, of course, but they're in the same direction. Uh, uh, it, it, it is it is relatively easy to then um, give them a vocabulary and a bit of structure to deal with those topics in their projects. So the algorithm, of course, it uses data. Where did the data come from? Uh, what about people's privacy? What about fairness? Is there bias in the data that were used to train the machine learning model? Yes. And how do we uh, mitigate? And transparency, can we look into the model? Well, for deep learning, it's more difficult than for a simple algorithm that you can look into and inspect. Um, so um, yeah, and th- th- there are books on ethics for technologists. Uh, one great book is by Van der Poel and Royacker. That's like uh, the standard book in the four universities of technology in the Netherlands and many more universities uh, internationally. Yeah, but I want to make something that's even more accessible uh, with more examples, with little exercises in it, like uh, what you can do in your own project, a bit of fiction. I don't know whether you came across those, but there are lots of um, fun writing those. There's four pieces of fiction to uh, to uh, to uh, uh, to accompany four main chapters in the middle of the book where I deal with four uh, 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 useful ethical perspectives: consequentialism, duty ethics, relational ethics, virtue ethics. And I want to make them a bit more, yeah, lively, as if it were stories that you could also emotionally engage with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those were the first bits of the book I wrote because I had to writing them, <laughs> and then. Like, they're not completely fictional. They could have happened in some project by me and other people. Yes. With, yes, a, bit of, with, a, big, with a bit of details. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, they're, they're realistic. Oh, definitely. I, I enjoyed reading them for, for precisely that reason. It, it did help to bring some of those issues to life uh, and doing it in a more interesting way than, than some of the more traditional approaches. So I, I like, you know, you sort of started out by talking about or sort of demythologizing some of the stuff around self-driving cars and the trolley problem and things like that and let, let's look at some more realistic situations yeah, yeah, yeah. We that, might that, be was, that was also a chapter <laughs> that i really loved right i mean just recently i read two great books of uh, professors one uk one us explaining ai to uh, the broader pro- pro- public mm. um and a little bit of surprise on my side like really half a chapter devoted to the trolley problem. I mean, it's a thought experiment from uh, when I was born in 1967. Yeah. <laughs> it's never meant as a 
calculation problem or an optimization problem that you can ask mm -hmm. a computer to solve for you. Like, have we now solved? No, we have not yes. solved. It was a thought experiment. And then indeed, like you say, but for the people who were uh, who going to read the book, I will not explain. I mean, I'm not, not, not give away too much. But essentially, I do what I often do is if everybody zoomed in, I zoom out. Mm -hmm. So you can zoom on on one person with one lever choosing for the track with five people through choosing for the track with one people whom shall I kill shall I kill the, the one or let shall I I let the trolley kill the five I mean mm -hmm. it's an interesting question for, for a couple of minutes but then I zoom out like what was wrong with the brake system anyways was yeah. there no maintenance what about the people who know about maintenance were they laid off what is this with privatization was there no governance on the safety and the labor conditions of the people on the track so and then, of course, it's too many questions that's mm. zoomed out too much, but it just gives a bit more broader perspective. Also, I wouldn't like it if I were a technologist. I don't like it if if my job looks like too focused. Like, is there really one detail only that I can talk about? I want to make. I want a bit of more design space that I mm. can try to influence positively. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, I think. And and as you say, it adds to the realism of the situation because the thought experiment is, as you say, a very limited experiment for precisely that reason, to to explore our intuitions and what we're trying to do and what, what our, our natural feelings are. And I think it, it works well there. But as you say, when it goes into the broader context of, um, I think there's probably some excitement in the early days of, oh, this is something philosophy can contribute to AI that's not talking about Skynet and machines mm. taking oh, over yeah, the yeah, world. Yeah, 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 sure. And I mean, uh, 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 don't get me wrong, the, the, it's a great starting point. Mm, mm, yeah. But it shouldn't Excellent. end there like, have we yes. now solved the trolley problem? <laughs> I've got to admit, I've never heard anybody say that, but that's quite a worrying concept that we might have solved it. Sometimes, sometimes you can run into people, they're deep into uh, quantifying the pluses mm. and the minuses, and then also delegating that calculation to a machine, to an autonomous system, and then it should calculate yeah. what's good and bad in terms of the pluses and minuses that it can access and and, and weigh against each other and yes also the other the other i mean there's something to say for that uh, there are machines that you hope will operate reliably precisely because they can also operate autonomously for a while if the radio contact is lost if they're in a very difficult uh, uh, um, uh, environment where people can't go if there's a time lag between the operator seeing what the camera sees i mean there's something to say for uh such a machine to such a robot often of course to uh to make some pluses and minuses uh trade off and then decide what to do before mm -hmm. the operator has a chance realistically to uh to have human uh, meaning for human control as it is called Yes, and that's obviously a problem with, or a challenge, I should say, with some technologies, particularly in the military, um, where you're thinking about the speed at which things happen is so fast that having a human in the loop becomes very difficult because you can't then have that level of control. And instead, you put the human on the loop and then you are delegating some of that moral decision making to the to the automated system. Yeah, that's an excellent example indeed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, excellent. Well, in the final section of the book, you talk more about human-centered design, um, value-sensitive design, and responsible innovation, which um, I think I think fits really nicely with what you've been saying about this sort of process approach. Could you talk about each of those and and how they differ? 
Oh, yeah. Um, it's maybe not so necessary that they differ. I was just looking at three things that I've encountered many times mm. in the industry. Uh, human-centered design, sometimes referred to as user-centered design, but mm. I prefer the human-centered because, well, there's the role of being a user, but that person will also be a friend, a father, an employee, so different roles. So it, talk about human-centered captures mm. a little bit more on that. Um, it's a, it's a it's a well established uh, uh, approach in the industry, uh, typically involving uh, participation of the putative or potential end users uh, in the design of the system or the product or the service. It's also iterative very much, so that that enables agile or Scrum approaches. Mm -hmm. uh, and then my proposal is is rather simply: you have your human center design or your sprint or your agile anyways yeah in it you can relatively easily integrate a couple of ethical questions yeah absolutely yeah the the, the other one value sensitive design as as well as the name suggests uh already an explicit focus on uh helping the participants in a workshop for example to to talk about values mm -hmm. uh, more explicitly um I also have in the chapter a bit of critique on value-sensitive design. <clears throat> it's a great method. However, um, how shall I put this? Uh, sometimes values and interests are conflated. Like okay. somebody would talk about this is an important value for us, but underneath is also an interest. And with it comes a power and a power uh, a relationship and a difference in power of the different stakeholders or people around the table. So my main concern with value sensitive design is if done well, it will acknowledge the role of power between the actors. Uh, and if that is not taken into account, power and power differences, yeah, it can be like naive. Mm. You did your two hours workshop. We now have yeah. clarity on the values that are important. Yeah, but what about power? Because power is 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 ultimately uh, uh, no, not ultimately from the start already, and ultimately, um, it defines what gets done with the results of such a workshop. Mm. Another thing that is immediately connected to this critique of what about power is. Um, Inclusion, diversity, participation, like, uh, so you have your value sensor design workshop, but one person may be missing, but maybe nobody's noticing that that person mm -hmm. is missing because implicitly it would have been weird if that person would have been invited, but why would it be weird? So yeah. I, uh, uh, yeah, the, the unusual suspects, the, uh, um, uh, yeah, I think those are my main concerns with value sensor design. But still, if you do that, if you're more conscious mm -hmm. on who do I invite and include, and who and whom do I unconsciously, unintendedly, unintentionally uh, exclude and not invite, and if you also find a way to deal with power, for example, give also the floor, give the give a bit of room to this marginalized voice. Uh, yeah, then value sensor design can be great. Third one, responsible innovation. It's a term that emerged in Brussels 10 years ago, I think. Uh, it's similar to technology assessment in its ambition to think about the potential implications and impacts of a technology already uh, during development. Uh, it has been used for emerging technologies like nanotechnology or bio something or uh, GMOs. 
Um, I often refer to a paper by Jack Stilgo et al, 2013, where they identify four key dimensions of responsible innovation. So anticipation, responsiveness. Um, oh, am I now forgetting the third one and the fourth one? I was <laughs> going to focus on the first two, to anticipate and to respond. Mm. Uh, what could go wrong? Uh, what could go wrong is often something that you need to be careful about how to voice it. Because often when I'm in a project, either as a project team member or as an advisor or a consultant, there's a yeah, there's a tendency to be positive about the technology because maybe it will do something good. That's the purpose. Uh, we're working hard to get it working. We're working hard to get it implemented with the client. So I'm always sensitive hopefully enough sensitive to uh, how do I how do I phrase questions uh, so that it doesn't sound immediately like you can't do that yes it will go wrong <laughs> because that will that will that will just I mean people don't like hearing that obviously I wouldn't like hearing that the other way around so um, I try to find ways to put questions like anticipation and, and responsiveness uh, on the table for them to engage with. And there will always be a couple of people in the room who have also wondered, and now we have a bit of space to voice those concerns. Right. Yeah, I think I think you're spot on there with the fact that so often ethicists can be sort of seen as the values police that come in and just yeah, and there's yeah, yeah. this sort of fear that you're going to close down the project um, or just say you can't do this yeah, yeah, yeah. rather <laughs> than actually helping the project along and helping it to move yeah, faster. And exactly. That was one of the things I quite liked when you were talking about the perceived problems with the responsible innovation. You said it's often perceived that it can slow a project down. But in actual fact, it, it, it often can speed the project up. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit more about that as well. How could this sort of ethics engagement help a project? Yeah, um, yeah either in terms of speed or in terms of quality. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice question. Just to come back to your remark, uh, mm. uh, uh, the ethicist, I never introduce or frame or identify as an ethicist. I'm just yeah. an engineer. I'm interested in ethical questions. Mm. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. That um, probably diffuses some of that concern then at the very beginning. Yeah. 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 Um, how responsible innovation can actually help speed up mm. or improve the quality rather than slowing it down. Um, yeah, I think it, I think it's both true, but I think in the end the speeding up wins because mm. it will take a couple of hours or a couple of weeks if you plan it uh, uh, carefully uh, in lead time in budget spent it will it will take something it will cost something but it will pay back and there's a parallel that we can draw with human center design or user center design where just imagine all the technology people focusing on their work getting uh, the machine working getting it out to the market on time which is great and only then near the end or at the end or after the end uh, doing the usability tests or the focus group or uh, and then I mean then all the budget is spent in the wrong direction or incorrectly or inefficiently and then uh, Jacob Nielsen I think it was or Donald Norman but they could have said both like the usability gurus uh, they would they would they would have many examples of yeah actually it's very wise to spend some time or even more time in the beginning 
to explore those topics because it will pay back. Mm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, th- 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 there's one example, but that's from many, many years ago. I think I do it in the book. Uh, the new business people of the KPN uh, Telecom, the incumbent telecom operator of the Netherlands, was I was exploring something new business. And then I did only three focus groups with six people each, so 18 people only. And then from a quantitative experimental research, that would have been like it's a small sample, but in this area of exploration, focus group usability, needs of people, interests of people, it's 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 more than enough to just mm. find out there's no need for this one. It's we've looked at it from many, many sides. There's just no real benefits. And then while I was finishing off my uh, 20 minute presentation, he was picking up his phone and canceling the project. And that still for me is like a great example of also the courage uh, first of this commissioner, this client to ask me to look at it critically. Secondly, to, yeah, to do something with the results. Mm. Um, in a way, uh, my book and all its uh, uh, insights in it can only work if people turn to the book, mm. use it in practice, and what they find in practice in the workshops that they organize themselves or the questions that they ask or the dialogues they facilitate, they have to do something with it. Otherwise, it's, yeah, philosophy yeah. In, the, uh, <laughs> in, the, in the negative caricatural uh, sense of the word. Yes, yes, it comes back to being its own thought experiment in a way of let's just explore what this might look like, as you say. So, yes, it's, do, do you find with people coming to you this kind of goes back to the point you made about technologists generally taking a very positive view about the technology they're creating. And I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, we're we're all in this field because we care about technology. We care about people. We want to improve people's lifestyles, um, improve the quality of life, et cetera, et cetera. And so, as you say, there can be this, this negative response when you start talking about ethics, a very defensive response of, but I'm not trying to do anything evil. I'm not trying, you know, I'm not going out creating bombs or trying to hurt people or anything like that. So I sometimes find that can lead to a level of defensiveness um, with people that, that sit there and think, are you, are you calling me evil? So if you come across that, and if so, how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, uh, no, I haven't come across it in such a manner because, as I said, I'm I'm careful in how I'm introduced to the project, how I introduce myself to the project, very much mm. on their side, mm. uh, only helping them to 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 make more explicit what they are already concerned with. Mm. Yeah, so that's also why they turn to me. Yeah, uh, yeah. I cannot come into a project uninvited, and then just barge in and speak it's 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 because we both want to uh um to collaborate and, mm-hmm. and improve the project as a whole and I, and I like the point you made as well about the fact that there are probably several people in the room already thinking about this and already thinking about these these issues and that by creating the space and the safety exactly. that allows them exactly to start the, to a bit of space them. a bit of time is often all that is needed to organize and then from it with a bit of vocabulary a bit of structure well you can learn that from a book or from other books or other methods uh that will just enable them to do that yeah mm-hmm. excellent no thanks it's been really really interesting um 
Is there, in the final few minutes, is there anything that we've not covered, that we've not talked about, that you'd like to add or that you'd like yeah, to sort of bring to people's attention? Yeah, the core of the attention? book. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will, not, I will not summarize four chapters, but I will. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> but very briefly. No, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, the core of the book is four chapters on these four main ethical perspectives. And... Uh, uh, I explain lots about them, but I can summarize them like one way to look at. So you have your product on the table, so to say, and often we start a rapid ethical deliberation session with, can somebody describe what we're working on? What will it look like practically? Who will use it? What will be its effects on the customers? If it is a customer facing application or on society or in institutions or values. So somebody explains that in five minutes. It's good to have that then the common reference. And then we look at it from four perspectives. And really, they are like the compass directions. Um, um, first one is relatively easy and accessible for people. The pluses and minuses. Mm-hmm. Uh, the benefits that it could offer, the costs, the risks that are also involved. And often there's an interesting exercise to draw the system boundaries a bit larger for, for chat GTP. There's also the gig workers in Kenya who had to do this work to clean up the data. There's also the materials that go into, uh, that come from a, a mine somewhere in Africa that go to the NVIDIA chips, etc. cetera. Uh, so that's the first one is relatively accessible also for technology oriented people plus and minuses. Second one is duties, duty perspective, duty ethics, deals with duties and rights. That's often also accessible, especially if people have a legal background because there's human rights, there's obligations, um, interestingly, they can sometimes look as as contradictory. So imagine, uh, for safety, we need to hang up cameras on the street, but our privacy, so mm-hmm. the security, the city <laughs> must protect and uh, promote security, safety, and the citizens have the right for privacy. So you cannot solve that, no, but you can if you look creatively at new technologies and they've been on the market for, for many years already. So there's data minimization, there's privacy enhancing technologies, there's ways to uh, to throw away the data every 24 hours. So that's a nice way to also um, spark creativity. We can, sometimes we can combine conflicting uh, uh, concerns. Third one is relational ethics. Um, Related to feminist ethics, in that it also helps to ask questions on power. So, uh, an algorithm say that a government agency uses an algorithm to point to people who potentially committed fraud with some welfare services. There was this infamous uh, mm. kinder toeslagen, <laughs> kinder opvang toeslagen schandaal. I don't know how that translates in English, but uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> child benefits so it was something disaster. like child benefit yeah it was child benefit fraud wasn't it the the the, yeah, the algorithm was assuming people were it was fraudulent. assuming and there were many many too many false positives and they mm. were like really hurt in their in a family life in a private yeah. life um so relational ethics perspective will look at a, what happens to this interaction between well some inspector with not necessarily evil intentions, just mm-hmm. out there to try to find fraud because throwing away tax money to fraud is not a good idea. And on the other hand, uh, uh, well-behaving innocent people uh, and the false positive. So it looks at that. 
and mm. also how to how to end the power uh, because if there's for example no transparency in the algorithm or are, if there are no effective way effective ways to to look into the algorithm and to get redress and repair which is unfortunately the case mm. then there's just too much power on one side and other so that's the third one fourth one is uh, virtue ethics and i learned a lot from shannon veller uh in that uh, i love very much the way that she puts it like we can look at technologies application services as tools mm -hmm. that people can can use to cultivate virtues that are necessary in our modern contemporary world world or the other way around that can corrode effectively mm -hmm. those virtues so social media is an uh, is a relatively easy example social media apps facebook twitter are typically designed by hundreds of psychologists somewhere in Silicon Valley with notifications, with beeps, with colors, with gamification, with badges, levels, what have you, to get you hooked to it. Mm. Their business model is based on grabbing people's attention, holding their attention, monetizing it. And the flip side of that, that it corrodes people's abilities and indeed their virtue for self-control mm -hmm. because two hours later what am i doing am i still in facebook so that's uh, and then you can imagine uh, uh, another business model and another app that would say hey uh, mark it looks like you're going to wikipedia for example how long do you want to spend mm. uh, and then after two minutes the beep goes off yeah so it's a nudge in the other direction yeah. now yeah. maybe do something more useful uh, than uh, being in your uh, uh, mobile phone trance. And lastly, and thanks for the opportunity to, uh, no, no, <laughs> to talk about content. <laughs> uh, the, the virtue ethics perspective also has a uh, has a has a has a side that is turned to the to the to the technologists. So if you're working on a project which involves an algorithm to detect fraud, you need justice yourself sense and indeed the virtue to promote justice mm. and uh, possibly courage to raise your hand in your meeting and to and to voice this concern like are we sure uh, about this bias that it is very small because I've looked into it and uh, yeah it'll cost some weeks to repair but I think we need uh, is there room for it so courage is often uh, mm. explained as um, doing something difficult but doing it nevertheless mm, yeah. so i like very much that and that's also how i end the book with a uh, uh, proposal for 15 or so uh, virtues that technologists can and i would say need to but you can you can choose of course for yourself which which virtues to cultivate how to cultivate um, mine is uh, creativity curiosity those are my like i also call them um, superpowers just to make it more yeah yeah that's my nudge towards the reader like don't think of them like virtues as some victorian yeah. <laughs> modesty yes. or, or, or or prudence yeah they're there they're not mm. they're not wrong but you can think of more contemporary like curiosity creativity collaboration uh, mm. empowerment these are also virtues that technologists may want to cultivate within themselves if they want to deliver products that also like uh, radiate out these same virtues into the world. Yeah, excellent.
Well, thank you, Mark. That's been really, really helpful. I'm really glad for that final section as well, bringing that, that together. That's been really nice. So thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, again, the book is Ethics for People Who Work in Tech by Mark Steen. The, um, it will be there in the show notes, uh, a link to the book um, or a way to be able to get hold of it, published by Routledge, at least in the, um, was it Routledge? CRC Press, who I think are part of Routledge. Um, they're, they're sister of Routledge, so both are in the Taylor and Francis group, but they're very similar in the, right, they're both right. Taylor and Francis, yes. Yeah, okay, excellent. So yes, we will, we will put a link to that in the notes. And thank you again, Mark, for your time. Uh, it's been a real pleasure chatting. Thanks a lot, Kevin, for the invitation. It's my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Getting Technology Right, Ethics and Technology podcast with Dr. Kevin Magnish, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit ITSPMagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.